0: Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. This is Episode 3, Bakumatsu. In the last episode, I covered the latter half of the Edo period, up to the middle of the Bakumatsu, and that is described as the period of time, generally from Commodore Perry's arrival to the fall of the Tokugawa Shogunate, roughly 15 years. We learned about the hierarchy inversion, the loss of samurai status, and the advance of the merchant class. In this episode, I want to spend a lot more time talking about the Bakumatsu period and finally finish the Edo era, close it out for good. I also want to provide some analysis and comparisons with the Manchu dynasty and China. Next episode, I can start fresh with the Meiji era. I want to pick up our story, sort of, right after Commodore Perry's arrival. I will not be overly redundant with information that I already spoke about, I promise. It was clear that Perry's arrival upset the order of things in Japan. The collapse of its isolation, while not completely by surprise, threw Japan in turmoil. The shogun had entered into several treaties with foreign nations against the advice of the emperor, For pro-imperial, anti-shogun factions, the foreign crisis, in particular the treaties, were the last straw. Much of Japan seethed in discontent over the treaty humiliations. We already learned in Episode 2 that radical samurais and their supporters began to attack, hurt, and murder Westerners. The English legation in Edo, Was burned to the ground in 1863. These insurgent nationalists took refuge and rallied around the emperor, who wanted to defy the foreigners. In the same areas of Japan, extremist samurais got control of local governments in an attempt to influence national policy. Gradually, the extremists' movement became openly hostile to the shogunate. Two of the leading rival domains in the west part of Japan were called Choshu and Satsuma. Both were among the largest areas and had old, old grievances with the Tokugawa shogunate all the way back to the year sixteen hundred. These two domains were generally and relatively financially well-off and could afford modern Western weaponry and recruit Western military strategy. At the mid-stages of the Bakumatsu, the Edo shogunate had used the Satsumo domain in its effort to drive Choshu forces out of Kyoto. But later, and secretly the Choshu and Satsuma domains agreed to an alliance. They realized they both had two common goals and beliefs. One, they disliked foreigners and wanted them expelled from Japan. And two, the old unsettled grievances with the Tokugawa clan and they wanted the shogunate toppled. If they joined forces, they would have a better chance of accomplishing their mutual goals. The entire situation took a drastic change in mid-1866. The shogun Tokugawa Aimochi unexpectedly died at the young age of 21. His successor, according to Tokugawa tradition, was Tokugawa Yoshinobo, He only reluctantly took the position because it was really a bad time to take that position. And remember, the emperor, Komi, who the shogunate was opposing, had to formally agree to the succession. And as fate sometimes works, soon after Emperor Kōmei appointed the shogun's successor in early 1867, the emperor unexpectedly died. He was only 36. While there were plans to continue the shogunate at that time, the death of the emperor caused some to rethink the timeline and the plan. Was this now the best time to go for regime change, the radicals thought? To make the radicals even each year, the new shogun opened the seaport against popular opposition. This proved to be the last spark that would light the fuse of revolution dynamite. Replacing the relatively young, deceased emperor, Komi, was his second son, Mut Mutshuhito, at that time only 15 years of age the radical samurais would eventually build their new government around this 15-year-old emperor. But first they had to contend with the shogun. The Choshu and Satsuma rebel domains worked together to take key cities in Japan. A petition was submitted to the shogun requesting his resignation, and that he recognize the emperor as the supreme leader of Japan. Fearing defeat, the shogun agreed to relinquish, relinquish some of his authority. The shogun even went so far to publicly announce his plans to reorganize the government under the emperor, while still preserving the shogun's authority. And on November nineteenth, 1867, the shogun resigned his post as the 15th Tokugawa shogun, and officially transferred power to the young emperor. The young rebel lords, fearing it was a ruse, continued with their military campaigns. The new emperor, with encouragement from Satsumo and Choshu lords, issued an edict dissolving the house of Tokugawa. The shogun had no choice but to resort to arms On January 3rd, 1868, the young radical lords announced the restoration of the emperor's status. It was basically a coup d'etat. The shogun, in in response, sent his forces to Kyoto to capture the emperor. But on January 27th, 1868, the shogunate forces clashed with the allied rebel forces those would be the choshu and Satsumo samurai in a four-day pitched battle this battle marked the beginning of what is called the boshin war literally meaning year of the dragon war, year of the dragon war it was a civil war in japan in this battle the shogunate forces were defeated The Allied rebel forces were better trained and had the better weapons. So I suppose it was inevitable. They seized the Imperial Palace at Kyoto and declared the end of the Tokugawa Shogunate. The new government would be supported militarily by the extremist samurais. In the autumn... Of 1868, the new leaders renamed Edo. Its new name would be Tokyo, meaning Eastern Capital. It would be the new seat of power in Japan. Also in 1868, the year was renamed to Meiji, meaning Enlightened Rule, eventually to be called the Meiji Restoration, and adopted the motto a rich country, and a strong military. These revolutionary allies, along with the emperor, got control over the entire country with surprising ease and minimal bloodshed. One can only imagine how the rest of the country saw a group of young samurai from western Japan, most from the lower ranks of samurai, seize control of their country, On April eleventh, 1869, the shogun formally surrendered to the Satsuma leader and handed over Edo Castle. This marked the end of the Boshin War as well. There were lingering battles in northern Japan by pro-shogun forces, but the end was inevitable. With the Meiji forces now numbering About 50,000, well trained and well supplied, and with superior weapons, in June of 1869, the last remnants of the Shogun supporters, the Shogunate supporters, conceded and surrendered. The Meiji government now controlled all of Japan. The transfer of power to Tokyo was a symbolic opening to the Meiji Restoration and the regeneration of Japan. Now, a new government would have to be built. A new political structure was necessary. It would not be easy, for sure. One of the things the new leaders did in furtherance of the political goals was convincing many of their local domains to restore their territories to the emperor. In return, the emperor would appoint the samurai as governors and receive one tenth of their previous revenues as personal income. For the rest of the domains, it was hoped the initial restorations to the emperor would create a chain reaction and they would voluntarily restore their domains to the emperor. For those domains that ultimately refused, They were forced to accede. Some years later, without warning, the Meiji government would altogether abolish the domains, putting them under central control. Those governors would be retired, so to speak, and given a financial stake in the new government to encourage their support of the new government. A centuries-old political system just was erased, with relative ease. The feudal system was abolished. Eventually the societal stratum, the class hierarchy, was lifted. Everyone would have equality. For the many samurai, no longer of any use, they were allowed a meager pension. Not all, for sure, went along with the new program, but that is inevitable, I suppose, with any kind of change. As I see it, it was amazing not one of these young samurais in the early Meiji era did not try to seize power for himself. An analogy to this would be the early Qing dynasty leaders in China, that band of young Manchu warriors involved in the conquest of China and the vanquishment of the Ming dynasty. Perhaps these unselfish early Manchu and Meiji leaders can provide all of us with a valuable lesson. Was it because they all wanted to achieve a common objective? To conquer and to stabilize? For now, anyway, Japan would have to endure the presence of foreign nations. They would have to abide by the treaties that were made by the shogunate. A legacy of this transition era was Iwakura Tomomi, or Tomami, a main figure in the samurai uprising that restored the emperor to power. But, as I will talk in greater detail later, the emperor's power, his actual power, was illusory. The young samurais that fought against the shogunate were the actual leaders. Their power was through consensus and consultation. This is eerily similar to the early Qing dynasty days with the beiles and their governance and consultation with the Chinese emperor. Another remarkable observation was that Japan's regime change was relatively quick. In comparison, the Qing Dynasty would be locked in its political struggles for nearly a century before there was enough inertia to topple the imperial Qing Dynasty. Perhaps, and I am merely speculating here, Japan had seen what was coming And that, combined with some of the distinctions I covered in the last episode, provided or caused the political sea to change much, much faster. But before I leave this episode, I want to set up things a little for the next episode. The overthrow of the Edo government was unusual in one sense. And it's something to think about. It was an aristocratic revolution. That is, the radical samurai that overthrew the shogunate were aristocrats themselves. Albeit, they were low-ranking samurai, but aristocrats nonetheless. The Japanese revolution was not a band of upset peasants revolting in the usual way, most of us us have learned about revolutions. In theory, the final movement restored the imperial rule of antiquity, but it was only for show. While cordial and respectful to the emperor, the rebel leaders followed, followed little of the ancient model. Instead, they took cues from Western contemporaries. While they revived the names of old institutions and titles, they were not functioning institutions. The big change these rebel leaders accomplished was casting off the feudal system of the shogunate and the piecemeal adoption of Western institutions. One of the large ironies from the Shogunate era was its incorporation of Western ideas, beliefs, and technology that helped pave the way for the Meiji. This would loom large in the coming phase of Japanese history. Next episode, I start with the beginning of the Meiji government. Thank you, and it has been a pleasure.